This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Welcome to the Weekly Retail Politics Podcast, and we thank you for giving us 30 minutes of your precious time to join us. Today, we will discuss the politics of the United States economy with two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning legendary investigative reporter Jim Steele, who, along with his longtime reporting partner, Don Barlett, are considered two of the great investigative reporters in American history, and they have done an exhaustive 40-year study on the U.S. economy that resulted in the book, America, What Went Wrong? And they updated the book earlier this year, adding the crisis continues. So hello, Jim, and welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you, Jerry. You know, uh, one of my favorite Washington stories was uh, when you and your wife and I were at a reception just before the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And Washington is kind of a, I don't know, it's every, everything is based on what you do. And if you walked into a party and someone said, what'd you do? And you told them and they didn't like, they'd just walk away. And um, your wife had the best comparison of Washington. And we were in Philly. We were all living in Philly. And she said, in Washington, people say, what do you do? You should come over to our house for dinner. But in Philadelphia, they say, come over to my house for dinner and we'll talk about what you do. And that was just the greatest. That was the greatest summation. I'll never yeah. forget it. So let's get to it. In your book, you quote former President Theodore Roosevelt in the argument that I really believe is probably the premise of your work. And that is, should the government play the key role in providing for Americans, as many Democrats believe, or should we allow capitalism and the business market to dictate the American economy? And Roosevelt's quote was, the public welfare outweighs private gain. Is that a gain? Is that what we're talking about here when we talk about the American economic condition? We are talking about that, Jerry. And that goes to the heart of what's happened over the last uh, four decades, the last 40 years. Because uh, what makes America great is certainly capitalism, but also the fact that we have the kind of economy that potentially can benefit everybody. And for a good part of our history, that was certainly true. Certainly after World War II, into the late 40s, 50s, 60s, into the 70s, uh, we, we all prospered. I should say all, except unfortunately many African-Americans didn't prosper. But in terms of the great bulk of the middle class, uh, everybody prospered. But the last 40 years, there has been a switch on this, where there, we've fallen in love from a policy standpoint. I, we, I mean the country has fallen in love with the idea that the market, the private market can dictate everything and everything will be better off with the market. The market will decide who gets a raise, who doesn't get a raise, what kind of benefits you have. Uh, The whole idea that capitalism rules everything. Capitalism has been great for the country, but sometimes there are excesses. And what we've seen over the, consistently now over the last uh, four decades is this whole balance is swung totally on onto the market. And there hasn't really been that kind of a pushback from the public and from people. And it's one of the reasons we have record income inequality in America today, more than any time in the last century. Uh, I mean, that's been a very uh, conscious 
an obvious result of uh, just depending on that. So yes, we do need that public input. And that's the heart of the best America. It's that balance between those two things. And we haven't had that in recent years. It gets to that heart of like pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And that's the mentality that we seem to have now. It's, it's up to you to make your, your way. And if you can't make your way, then you know, you go up, you'll go out, you go by the wayside, but you go through a lot of recipes of economic ills that you believe need to be corrected if this eroding middle class is to be restored. And one is restructuring our tax system, increasing uh, Republican tax breaks to the rich, the loopholes, the benefits to taking your company and moving offshore to avoid paying taxes. What do you see as the vaccine, if you will, to fixing our tax system? Well, the taxes, you're so right, really go to the heart of much of this this problem. Uh, uh, Don, I've concluded that the tax code is the single greatest driver of income inequality. Uh, and a lot of people don't realize how much higher tax rates used to be at the federal level, especially young people today. Uh, but we've consistently cut taxes for people at the top. We have consistently cut taxes for big corporations. Uh, we've provided various other kinds of tax breaks for them that have been very beneficial. You go back not so many years ago, and corporations paid 39% of the total amount of income taxes paid in the U.S. You know what it is today? It's under 10%. Wow. And that's even, and, and by the way, that's before COVID-19. This is right. before all of this happened, which has scrambled all kinds of numbers uh, for both individuals and corporations. So that's a huge change. Similarly, in, in terms of uh, of the, the, the wealthiest in this country. If you go back to 1959, 1960, uh, the top 4% paid uh, the equivalent of as much as the 35% of the rest of the country. Today, that top 4% pays as much as the 57%. So you've had this total switch with more and more money flowing to the top. So that's one thing you do. The other thing is you figure out some ways to create really good paying jobs. Uh, manufacturing used to be the great uh, provider of middle-class uh, incomes and benefits and retirement. As we all know, manufacturing has been gutted in this country systematically over many decades. And uh, we haven't come along and, and replaced those jobs with anything paying those particular kinds of benefits or, or, or wages. And as a result of this, uh, median family income, average wages of working people stagnant or decline, all of those things that were totally the opposite of that in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s have now switched over that way. And that's one of the reasons we have so much, frankly, I think, unrest in the country. And I've always been a believer in the flat tax and, you know, straight up everybody paid 20%, but I know you and Don did not um, uh, support you don't support that and and I understand the critics say hey twenty percent of thirty thousand is a lot harder on somebody than twenty percent of six hundred thousand so tell tell me your thoughts on that the problem with the flat tax is that those at the top get a great tax break and those at the bottom uh, basically get hosed yeah in a uh, dollar and, amount and, in the dollar amount and, and well I'm thinking about the in the in the percentage of what they, they would have to pay. Uh, and the problem with, with that is uh, the progressive income tax generally, I think, is the fairest tax. The more you make, the more you should pay. 
Uh, and as I was alluding to earlier, I mean, the rates today compared to like the 40s, 50s, 60s, even the 70s are very low. When Ronald Reagan took office in 1980, 40 years ago, the top rate on some income was 70%. Wow. The top rate today is 37.8. Joe Biden wants to raise it a little bit. uh, But again, uh, it's very modest compared to what those rates used to be. He -hmm. wants to also raise the corporate income tax up uh, based on the cuts from the Trump tax bill. So I think jobs, uh, taxes, uh, health care is another one that I think... uh, is really important. We need we need to deal with that now because uh, even with Obamacare, we still had twenty some million people without health mm-hmm. insurance in this country. But again, mm-hmm. before COVID nineteen, mm-hmm. uh, and now of course it's much worse. And now mm-hmm. we've seen the real flaws in the American system where you lose your job, you very often lose your health care. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's been a lot of discussion in, uh, in the Biden administration about what to do about that. So I think that's also going to be another really important thing we're going to have to look at and do something about. In the preface of your most recent book, our old friend and uh, editor friend Max King had written that six out of 10 Americans uh, have no savings. They're living paycheck to paycheck, and uh, their economic foundation is crippled with a layoff or a health crisis. Um, that's amazing to me. But what in what is the antidote for that in your mind? I mean, how do we how do we deal with that? Well, one of the ways I think is to increase the minimum wage. Um, it, if you go back, the minimum wage has not been increased uh, for many years now. And let me pull out one statistic that to me is, uh, I mean, really, really kind of dramatic on this. If you go back, uh, it's like seven twenty-five an hour now. It hasn't been increased since 2009. And it's wow. actually 35% lower uh, mm-hmm. than it was in 1970, adjusted for inflation. Yeah. So you've got a whole class of people here at the bottom who haven't had the benefit of that. Uh, some states have raised it, and in fact, those states' uh, income inequality appears to have shrunk a little bit, and that mm-hmm. does and that makes sense. You pay people some more, you do those kinds of things. The point you made in your first question here is really a powerful one about uh, what, what Max said about people not having enough money. Uh, Don and I have always done all our own statistics, as I think you know, mm-hmm. because that's mm-hmm. how we stand by them. We, but there's one statistic in the upgraded, the updated and expanded book that's not from us that is so powerful. And it has to do with a Federal Reserve study of a couple of years ago where they concluded uh, if uh, four out of 10 Americans faced with the need to raise $400 for an emergency, wouldn't have the money, wouldn't be able wow. to raise it. I mean, wow. that's almost half the country right there, let mm-hmm. alone that, that margin of people right above them. And that's what people don't realize. If they're doing, if you're doing okay, you think, well, I'm doing okay. But this is problems out there. And these aren't people just under viaducts in, by interstates. I mean, these are average working people who uh, there's no safety net. They have no savings because they don't make enough money. And so the, the, the answer to that, obviously, is to create the kinds of jobs, to create the kind of economic environment uh, where the benefits that America is capable of producing are spread to all people. And and that's in the 
country that's the richest on the planet. Exactly. I mean, we're the, you know, and, and you mentioned the big issue, the minimum wage. Um, Democrats want to see it go up to 15 an hour. And just this week, President Biden issued a mandate that companies with contracts with the federal government must pay that. Businesses um, and the Republicans claim paying that wage could force them to lose their businesses. Um, what's your thoughts on that battle? I mean, how do you answer those people who say, hey, you know, we, we're going to lose our businesses if we do this? You always hear that uh, anytime anybody wants to raise the minimum wage. You Similarly, you'll, you'll always hear, well, if we raise taxes, that's going to put a damper on the economy. Uh, and these things are, I think, invariably exaggerated and overblown. I'm sure you might find a business here or there where this would, would be a problem. But I think it has to be balanced against the interest overall of people who need a living wage who are having difficulty uh, taking care of their families. And if, and if you spread it around so that you can't move your business from one state to another, uh, then the entire country has to deal with that and face with that. Face with it. You can't, somebody else can't cop out and go someplace else. And I think that part's very important. When, uh, the, the, the economic stuff on this is so interesting. And uh, Don and I have followed this for years. Like when Bill Clinton back in the 90s, right after he was elected, when he was raising taxes or passing and trying to raise them, everybody said, oh my goodness, this is going to be the death of this economy. It's just coming out of a recession right now. Well, what proceeded there were year after year after year of extraordinary growth. And in fact, Clinton had a funny line at the end of it. He said, I don't know why these millionaires don't like me. I made so many of them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so anyway, I, I mean, it's, all of this stuff, sometimes it's exaggerated. But the point is, we need to create the kind of economy uh, where more people can benefit from really the riches of America. And I think that's one of the tools that uh, that can help achieve that. And and we have these colossal businesses now like Amazon, yeah, you yeah. know, which has been criticized for the pay and the working conditions that they put their 650,000 full-time and part-time employees through. Amazon raised this minimum wage recently to $15 an hour, which gives a full-time employee about a $30,000 a year annual salary. Meanwhile, Amazon business owner Jeff Bezos is worth $182 billion. Has Bezos become the Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, Andrew Carnegie of the late 1800s. Um, you know, our economy, as you mentioned, has been forced to shift from the higher paying factory jobs to a lower paying service industry. Have our retail workers become the coal miners and textile workers of the 1900s exploited by billionaires who make their money off their employees' toil? Well, it's, it's a really good point. Jerry, and I think in many ways that's true. I mean, Bezos has certainly tried to uh, make up for this a little bit with the uh, certainly the wage thing and so forth. But uh, there's still a lot of work that I think he probably needs to do and Amazon needs to do to create a really a, a company that really is good for everybody uh, in that network. So he, he does need to do it. And uh, people keep saying when somebody has this kind of money, what do you do? How do you... To me, it's a matter of taxing them. Uh, if we taxed Jeff Bezos more in various ways, everything from capital gains to his income, his ordinary income, uh, is that going to affect his way of life in any way? Not a bit. 
And, and that's one of the points of the book. We can raise taxes at the top. It's not going to put a damper on the economy. It's just going to spread a lot of this wealth around. Bezos and everybody in that category, uh, who, you know, whether it's uh, Tim Cook of Apple or the, the fellows at Google's on down the line, all, all the tech people. Yeah, we, we pick on him, but we've got the Kmart, right, you, know, you know, Targets and the, and the, the, the Walton family with the, the um, you know, the Walmarts. I mean, so we, we pick on Bezos because he's, but you, there's a lot of these companies out there. Exactly. And, and the way I, I think the easiest way to deal with it, you're always seeing like, well, maybe we should have some remedy for something like this, blah, blah, blah. Let's just tax them. That's the simplest way to do it. And it's not going to affect their, their way of life at all. Uh, but rich people, as a rule, uh, there are very few of them who like to be taxed, and they like to have their money to decide how they should distribute it through their foundations and things of that sort. That was Andrew Carnegie's model. Andrew Carnegie hated taxes uh, because it deprived him of some money for his libraries and other kinds of things that helped him rebuild his reputation after he busted steelworkers in Pittsburgh. So, yeah, uh, yeah, But yeah. anyway, the point is, that's the way through the public process. You do that, it doesn't change their way of life a bit, doesn't affect them a bit, but I think it's good for the country and it's part of restoring the balance. And, and that brings us to the issue of labor unions, which grew up out of that Carnegie, yes. Morgan uh, era. And, um, you know, I saw a couple of books last year and they were pointing to the Trump administration saying, you know, is this the end of democracy? And of course, we heard that when Reagan was in, we could have wrote that book when Nixon was in. But the reviewer was very interesting. He was a labor professor. And he said the decline of labor unions has really removed the political voice from the middle class. So in the 60s, the estimate was that there were 30% of Americans in the labor unions. It's now down to 10%. One in 10 people are in labor unions. Do you think the erosion of labor unions has resulted in that middle-class workers being more disenfranchised from the political system? Absolutely. I don't think there's any doubt about it. Uh, the labor unions, uh, especially the stronger ones today, still have a pretty good voice in Washington. Uh to make certain positions heard, uh, but overall, uh, they, they, their whole basis has been eroded. There's no doubt about it, not because they don't represent as many people as they used to, and the economy has shifted from the strong manufacturing base where almost every one of those companies, industries was heavily unionized, uh, a unionization that not only led to good wages, uh, good incomes, but it led to good benefits, led to good pensions, don't get me going on pensions and retirement. <laughs> I mean, well, that's coming up. Okay, it's coming well. Well, it's uh, ready. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm there. But it, that's a perfect example of what what has happened with the decline of unions. I mean, they were instrumental in, in pioneering in those benefits and uh, yeah. a lot of those things. There's nobody. They, they were speaking for working people, and uh, that's been eroded significantly. But they've kind of hurt themselves in a lot of ways. And, and you know, you have Jimmy Hoffa bankrolling the Las Vegas casinos with billions for the mob. And we even have the situation, and you, you were in Philadelphia a long time. You know, we have union makers making, two, union leaders making $200,000 representing workers making fifteen, And they, they, they've kind of hurt themselves in a lot of ways. How do you come back? Back from something like that. Well, you're absolutely right about the way they've hurt themselves. And the auto workers who were always 
such paragons of, I thought, virtue and ethical behavior. Uh, they've gotten into trouble in recent years, which I'm sure you've seen those stories out of Detroit and so forth. Uh, none of us can control that directly. You just hope that people running those institutions remember who they're representing and remember that they have kind of a sacred right to protect that membership and to not uh, improperly spend their dues money. Uh, And I think many unions, the leadership does do that. And every once in a while you get those, those folks who don't. I mean, the sad thing about let's let's talk about uh, Hoffa for just a second, or the Teamsters. Yeah, Hoffa did some things that were not good, but the irony of Hoffa is all those truck drivers were so much better off in those days than they are today. Those mm-hmm. guys driving those trucks today, uh, the over-the-road contracts are not what they used to be. Hoffa's power got taken away from him. The Teamsters got beaten back. Uh, when it, we got a whole section in the book about the wages of truckers and yeah. how that hasn't come, it just hasn't even kept pace with inflation. And mm-hmm. by deregulating that industry, it's, it's, it's kind of destroyed some things on both the corporate as well as the, uh, uh, the employee side. So at the risk of sounding soft on Jimmy Hoffa here. <laughs> <laughs> you mean St. Jimmy. St. Jimmy. He did represent those people in terms of their bread and butter issues. And yeah. uh, a lot of folks, uh, unfortunately, aren't doing that to the state. So... But, but you're right, because there's no, nothing has taken the place of that strong voice the unions had on behalf of working people, middle class people. It's still out there, but it's just muted compared to what it used to be. Yeah, and I, I'm always curious as why the labor unions have not been able to organize the retail and service sector. I mean, are people just, are they unsuccessful because people just fear for their jobs and they're not willing to attend? attempt to join it for fear of losing their jobs? It's a, it's a good question. And uh, the, the most successful union, I guess it's the biggest now, is the Service Employees Union, which is right. not retail, but uh, it's, certain, it's not just janitors. It's a whole range of, of other people in public employment and things of that sort. They, they've been very successful. I think they may be over 2 million in membership now. Don't, right. don't hold me to that that number. But mm-hmm. anyway, uh, and I don't, I'm, I'm not sure what the problem has been with the retail clerks were great with like grocery uh, stores and things of that sort. But so many of these businesses have undergone such uh, upheaval. I mean, mm-hmm. businesses in this country used to kind of stay where they, they grew, they prospered, but the name stayed there, their plants stayed there. Uh, you just go back a few years and everything has been upheaval. And I mean, that's one of the things that people talk about you know, the updated book. Uh, it, it kind of signaled what was in the works back in the eighties and it's proceeded at kind of a rampant pace ever since. And the company's been bought, mm-hmm. sold, taken apart, uh, reorganized, renamed, uh, hedge funds, hedge funds, yeah. private yes. equity funds, taking them over, running them in the ground, take right. their fees, but uh, being very bad for the employees and the, and the mid-level managers as well, not just not just folks on the, the floor. So I think part of it is that upheaval that, that retail has been going through. Uh, and now just the, the survival of brick and mortar, of course, is, is at stake. So it's extremely hard for unions to 
appeal there because I think I think all those brick and mortar workers are scared to death. They are going to lose their jobs, uh, union or no union. We recently saw the attack on the U.S. Capitol uh, by the Trump supporters and analysts now kind of looking at it saying the rebels were mostly non-college educated white men. And of course, Trump was elected on the votes of these guys who feel they have been forgotten in the global economy. Uh, We see rebellion of governments when the masses get tired of being poor while watching the rich get richer. Um, Of course, there's no you know, there's no justification of what these people did, but is it an outgrowth of this economic um, disparity that we have in this country? Absolutely. It, it, there's just no doubt about it. And uh, Don and I have written about this situation really for more than 30 years. And I've, I've been at kitchen tables with people who lost their jobs in manufacturing operations. And uh, they, they would hear things out of Washington, ironically, mainly out of Trump's the Republican Party, but it was also Democrats, that, well, this is terrible, it's a dislocation, but America is going to create a job for you because that's just the way America is. Uh, but a lot of those people were left behind and they felt they were, if not lied to, they weren't, nobody was being straight with them about exactly what was going to happen to their way of life and their standard of living. And they felt neglected and lost. And he tapped into that very, very effectively. And uh, I, mean, I, I could tell you, I've been places all over this country, the Midwest, the East, the West. And I've seen what a lot of those people have gone through for many decades. And uh, a lot of them are angry. A lot of them are upset because they feel nobody is paying attention to them. And I think that's what, in part, he tapped into. But um, it, the key thing that's kind of interesting about that, too, is years ago, those uh, non-educated, non-college educated white men were Democrats. What has made them shift to the Republicans? Well, this, this is really an interesting point. And by the way, I'm not a political writer. Uh, sure, I'm, not, sure. I'm not trying to punt here on this one. But, yeah. <laughs> but I have the feeling it's issues other than economic, uh, uh-huh. I think. And I'm just speculating. I don't know this for a fact. I think uh, the Democratic Party has, in in its overall attempt at being diverse, uh, a lot of those feel, which is good for a country, and that's what that's what America is all about nowadays. I think with many of those people, they felt they were being left behind, that they were not part of that diversity discussion, uh, because their jobs had been affected so on and so forth. So I think people felt left out as much as anything. Uh, The Democrats ought to be able to win them back, though, because, I mean, look at the Trump tax bill. I mean, how in the world can any manufacturing guy vote for Trump if he looked at that tax bill? That tax bill, the top people over a million got, on average, that whole class of people got an average of $64,000 a year, a tax cut for 10 years. I mean, that's not my idea of taking care of the great mass of American people. It's over right. half a trillion dollars will flow to the top. Right. And this is after many other tax cuts prior to that. Right. Uh, so I think it's things other than economic that maybe have turned people off. But again, um, I think the Democrats can, with certain bread and butter issues, get a lot get a lot of people back. But they have to reach out in a way they haven't 
they haven't in the past. And and it's I guess it's kind of a cliche, but we always say, hey, we didn't get into this mess overnight. We're not going to yeah. get out of this mess overnight. But, you know, Biden's coming in. He's a couple of weeks now. He's doing a lot of work and signing a lot of uh, executive orders. What do you think he needs to do in dealing with this issue, this disparity of uh, of the economy for the has and have not. Well, let's, let's just talk about two things quickly. One is the immediate stuff and the more long-range stuff. The more immediate stuff is what he is trying to do, which is the COVID package and get more money into the hands of people. That's good. That's there's no doubt anything like that will be very helpful. Long-range, uh, he's talked about infrastructure, not just bridges and highways, though that's important, but transit, uh, green, green jobs as well that are part of that whole package. That's an extremely important thing to, to try to stimulate the economy to get really good paying jobs in there. That's the other major thing that, that just cries out, which I talked about earlier, is health care. Uh, not just those who are without health care, but even people who have health care now are finding they're having to, it's costing them more and more because companies are shifting the cost to them or the insurance companies are doing the same thing. So there's a whole range of things like that that we need to do it. And I haven't even talked about retirement. I mean, it's companies over the last 30 years have killed 175,000 pension plans, 175,000. Wow. Wow. And what wow. have they been replaced with? 401ks that have a median value for people in their sixties of, uh, 60 some thousand dollars. Yeah. That last year, year, not exactly what we call a safe yeah, retirement sure. down the road for those people. Yeah. So, uh, I think getting the economy going, trying to stimulate it, uh, obviously, the minimum wage is part of that. Healthcare is a big factor as well, uh, and I think also just telling people there's hope here. Uh, but this isn't going to happen in two years or four years. But we've got to settle on some plans that call for the long-range change in the way we do business in this country. That we don't just let the market decide because it's failed you, and it's failed it more than half the country. And that's just what it, what what you're saying he needs to do is establish at least that economic foundation that we can work from. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned healthcare and and uh, the 20 million people estimated who don't have it right now and um, you know my daughter I was talking to her this week and her her friend uh, her his mother had a stroke uh, and she's in the hospital in a coma which is going to be $100,000 bill at least. Her father just started a job but he doesn't get health care for three months and yeah. so there's no health care and that is just to me uh it, it's an it's a national embarrassment i mean it, you know we look at cuba we look at other countries that are given affordable and efficient health care and here we are it's supposed to be the most powerful nation on the planet and uh, i mean i guess the question is and, and and i'll ask it to you is it the federal government's responsibility to provide everybody health care well, you you put your finger on uh, you, you call it an embarrassment. It's a sh it's a shocking, I think, dereliction of duty, but it goes to the heart of what the book is about, which is we we think we've turned this over to the market, and the market's supposed to handle everything. Well, look how look what a great job it's done with healthcare, <laughs> and, and, the, and the people who defend this system will say things like, "Well, Americans they have the best doctors, they have the best hospitals, but we have a very lousy healthcare system." in terms of taking care of everybody. So we're not talking about, and anytime you raise this up, people talk about socialism and malarkey like that. It, right, this, is not, right. this is not socialism. 
we're talking about something like which exists now with under Medicare for anybody over 65 years of age. Anybody there has got Medicare. They can also buy private insurance. Mm -hmm. uh, they can choose their own doctor in most mm -hmm. cases. Uh, this is, in, in, in some cases, better than it is if you're under private insurance, which, which sure. is a more restrictive thing. So we need to adopt something like that. Uh, Biden has talked about a public op option, which would mean uh, the government would step in if somebody couldn't find insurance for themselves or couldn't or couldn't afford it. That's a step in that direction. But one of these days, there will be universal coverage in this country, and we'll all look back and say, "Why did it take us this long to do this? This very humane and necessary thing that would actually underpin the economy of the country. Mm -hmm. It would mm -hmm. it would it would create a certain amount of security." That would be good yeah. for everybody, including corporations. And it is kind of interesting when you mention Medicare because that system does work. I mean, I know, I mean, I'm 59, so we're getting closer. And people are like, they're they're like running down the track. They just can't wait to get to that finish line to get the Medicare because then they're, I mean, you have people who can't retire because they got to pay for their health insurance. That's exactly But right. everybody's rushing for that, for that finish line. I can't wait till I get Medicare and then I'm all straightened out. So yeah, you're right. We, I guess there is a segment of our, our our healthcare system that is working for people, but it's it's just that you have to get to that point, you know? The strange thing about that is is that uh, my wife and I are both very healthy, but like everybody, you go to doctors and your general practitioner to something else. And I've had a habit over the years of asking every doctor I've gone to, and she does too as part of my little study, I said, ask them uh, who they like dealing with, the insurance companies or Medicare. To a doctor, they all say Medicare. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a system that works. The, their costs are lower than the private insurance companies. But the most important thing here is that it, it provides a basis, a foundation, so that mm -hmm. it, this family, this, this person you just mentioned who's the friend of your daughter, goes into the hospital, they're not going to risk losing their house, perhaps. Uh, I mean, people lose yeah. their houses in this country over yes, medical bills. I mean, yes, that's, that's just crime. That's a crime. They're put on the street. I mean, right. they're they're that they, they uh, that's not that's not a, a, an exaggeration. Well, I mean, well, it's that true. happens. It's true. And you're doubled up with your sister, or you're doubled up with your brother, and then that's the thing. One of the things that um you dealt with, I remember very much in the first series when it ran back in the Philadelphia Inquirer in the '90s was the federal trade deficit. Yes. And uh, you guys explained that. And I remember I was in Florida, but my brother was just you know glued to your series, and he didn't know a whole lot about the federal trade deficit, and he was stunned to learn about it. So explain to us what the federal trade deficit is and what it does. Well, the trade deficit is uh, uh, the balance of goods that you export and import. In other words, uh, the ideal trade deficit is to have those two uh, sides of the ledger in some kind of balance. Well, ever since 1976, we have been running up ever greater and larger trade deficits. Uh, unlike Almost all other developed nations in both Europe and uh, and Japan, uh, in the beginning, after in, in the fifties, it was kind of a way the U.S. Uh, said to poorer countries, "Look, we'll buy your stuff and help you get on your feet, and uh, you'll be more prosperous, and the world will be better off, and you'll be better off, and we'll be better off because you're better off." That sort of thing. But uh, corporations, at some point realized that it would certainly be a lot cheaper to 
send manufacturing offshore to the various places rather than trying to keep it uh, in the U.S. So that opened the door to companies to make a lot more money by eliminating those higher paying jobs in the U.S. with benefits and so forth and uh, putting the manufacturing offshore. So what's happened is, uh, it's amazing, the last year where the deficit was in balance was the 200th birthday of the United States, 1976. Ever since then, it's a different story. More and more red ink, and that's continued under Trump uh, despite his efforts to uh, do some things with uh, China and otherwise. Uh, So one of the things we need to do and Don, I've actually written about this for a long time. Uh, it's you selected tariffs are probably okay in some cases if there's one particular industry that let's say China is uh, hammering us on. But the most important thing is to really try to compel other countries to buy more things from us, not just agricultural products, but real goods and and real services. One of the things that's so the NAFTA Act that Trump made it sound like in this renegotiation was this great thing. Like one of the things he got in that was British Columbia now has to buy wine from the United States to put in their state stores. <laughs> well, that's a big deal, isn't it? That's a lot of jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm, that's fine for California vintners. I'm not knocking that, but that's not the solution to our trade problem. Right. I mean, it's, it's buying the, the most significant high value kinds of things we produce and services and otherwise. And uh, for many years, we weren't very aggressive on that. And that was true of both Democrats and Republicans. And even when anybody raised questions about this, uh, they were accused of being a protectionist and uh, Mm -hmm. against free trade. Uh, Mm -hmm. And free trade is a great idea, but it has to be, you have fair trade. It has to be fair trade. Exactly. And um, why do you think we have not been that aggressive? I mean, you know, America makes great things. Why can't we sell them to other countries? I think for a long time, uh, it was to the advantage of many of the big corporations to do exactly what they did. Uh, the ones who wanted to export their manufacturing capability. So they were a very powerful lobby to make sure there were the right kinds of things in the tax code. Uh, that let them do uh, things like that. So uh, that was a very powerful lobby speaking on behalf of like, quote, free trade and and against alleged protectionism. Uh, But what we needed really was uh, a true presence in Congress in both parties and certainly at the White House. Uh, And and, and to to say, look, to do this properly, uh, we need to keep these things in more balance. We can't just every year after year after year have this trade deficit going through the roof uh, because ultimately it would pay a price in our manufacturing. And particularly it would pay a price in terms of the standard of living of the working people in the country. I think that's the, the most serious consequence. And it's kind of interesting. You talk a lot about taxes, and I have to qualify the fact that you won your first Pulitzer Prize, you and Don did, auditing the IRS, which was which was an amazing thing. And then your second Pulitzer Prize came when you found the um, the tax breaks for particular people that were stuffed into the uh, and stuffed yeah. into the bill. And that was, uh, I always loved that story, too. I remember you were at IRE Congress conference, and someone said, hey, did you guys have a big secret? 
secret source that fed you all this tax information. And you guys were like, no, we found it in the fourth paragraph of a New York Times story inside the paper, you know, and that was a great, uh, that was a great reporting lesson, you know, that, to, to, to do that. So um, that, that was very fascinating. Um, if I say to you, Jim Steele, you're in charge of fixing this economy, what do you recommend? Well, how soon can I get the job, Jerry? <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. We'll Bill. give you a tax break. I'm ready to go. <laughs> well, I, 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 like I said, I think the harder with obviously beyond just this immediate thing that uh, the Democrats and Biden are trying to do on COVID-19, which ironically is what very similar to what Trump was trying to get his own party to go along with. But beyond that, I think uh, rebuilding the economy, finding ways to make sure we make some long-term investments. Uh, infrastructure is one. Even classic infrastructure uh, is important. I once ran across not so long ago, uh, when we invest in infrastructure in this country, just the simple things, bridges, uh, roads, railroads, uh, high tension electrical lines, all those kinds of things, uh, from like 1950 to about 1980, uh, infrastructure investment as a percentage of GDP was, I can't remember the exact number, but it was like three, three and a half percent, something like that. And guess what? The economy grew at about that same level. Mm-hmm. Since 1980 on, uh, the investment in infrastructure has been substantially less. And guess mm-hmm. what? O- overall economic growth has been less. Right. So there's a direct correlation. It's not just the people who are on those jobs. It's a great spillover factor that has to do with modernization. And that has to do with the government taking a more aggressive role in the economy. Uh, right. And was Dwight Eisenhower a commie? I mean, he believed in the interstate highway system. Sure, sure. Uh, changed, the world, changed the country. Yeah. I mean, geez. And, and same with Harry yeah. Truman at the end of World War II with the GI Bill and FHA and all kinds of other things. Those were broad-based right. programs. And we need some of those. Yeah. And also harkens back to FDR and the public works projects and, you know, how we got out of that mess, sure. um, you know, by doing public works and, and doing public projects. That's it. So, sir, I want to thank you so much for joining us and taking your time to do this. Uh, you have been an incredible influence on, on me and, and I, I, uh, I am here very much because of you. Um, and um, I think that, um, you know, I think people need to get your book because if you want to know everything about the economy over the last 40, 50 years, um, it is all there. It is a, uh, it is a dictionary. I, you know, interned for you guys at the Inquirer, but I never told anybody that because you made people so angry. I wanted them to talk to me. So I never <laughs> said I knew you guys. So, <laughs> but uh, you, you really have. You've been a, a wonderful um, inspiration and uh, no amount of words I could write could ever uh, express my gratitude to that. But not only that, you're a great investigative reporter. You're thorough, you're meticulous, but you're a good guy. You're a gentleman. And I've always uh, admired that about you. So blessings to you, my friend. Well, you're very kind. Jerry. It's always great to visit with you, and I wish you the best as well. And uh, thanks for having me on your, your program. It's just terrific. I appreciate it. I would like to thank our executive producer, Mike Gugat, and our sound director and 
technical director brad maybe the wizard of pods and uh please uh, check out my latest book the front row my jagged journey recording american history from reagan to trump where you can read all about jim Steele and how he helped the pioneer uh computer assisted reporting which is a whole nother podcast and that book is available on amazon.com we will be back next week with another edition of our weekly sunday retail politics podcast and until then Always remember to read beyond the headlines. Have a great week.